Well, notorious conversions always grab public attention. Have you noticed that? Take young Martin, for example. Despite all of his pious attempts to live a pure life, despite the noble intellectual pursuits, despite all of his theological study, night after night, he would still cry out, oh Lord, my sin, my sin. As his convictions of sin deepened, he sought by his own works to obtain pardon and peace. He was trying desperately to find some way that he could rest his head on his pillow at night and be at peace. He tried fasting. He tried scourging. He tried everything he knew to do. He said himself, if ever monk could obtain heaven by its monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. He was so earnest and yet so desperate. It is said that if he would have continued on this path much longer of self-denial and pain and agony and, and his mind just never being at peace, it would have eventually led to his death. But the Lord led him to a passage that forever changed his life, and I pray it's changed ours as well. The just shall live by faith. He read the words again. And again, and again, and they shot like flaming arrows into his soul and his heart, piercing deep within, melting layers of hardened guilt and fear, and Martin Luther was reborn. He was a new person, a new man, and that eventually led to the 95 Theses nailed to the door. That was quickly seen around Europe, and as we say, the rest is history. He was a brilliant theologian, an expert in scriptures, yet lived in enmity with God who spoke through them. Can we live there at times? Going through all the motions, knowing the scriptures, but so far from the God of the scriptures. Jim Voss, Jr., he was a wiretapper in the 1940s, a very good one at that, the best some say. He was a master of the art of planting taps and listening into other people's lives to dredge up dirt that he could use as evidence or leverage. Jim started with the L.A. Police Department, where he helped bust many high publicity crimes and scandals. Then he brought his talents to a private detective agency where he eavesdropped on behalf of such Hollywood legends as Mickey Rooney and others. Eventually, Jim's particular set of skills caught the eye of notorious crime boss, Mickey Cohen. He had worked with Al Capone and others, and now was considered the king of crime in L.A. And when Cohen discovered that Voss had bugged his house for the LAPD, he could have killed him, but he chose not to. Instead, he hired him to spy on the cops. So Voss became a double agent of sorts. He worked for the cops and for Cohen. Later, when he was found out, he was tagged the Judas with an earpiece. Voss himself faced the constant stress of living a double life. He was miserable and empty. Can we ever find ourselves in that reality? miserable and empty of living the double life. We go to church, 
But during the week, there's an entirely different person. And it left Voss miserable and empty. Then one day, Voss decided to attend the Billy Graham Tent Crusade on the corner of Washington Hill Streets in downtown L.A. Amidst a crowd of over 6,000 people, Jim Voss grasps a message of grace and forgiveness. And according to the Los Angeles Times, the notorious mobster stumbled to his feet and walked the sawdust trail and knelt weeping at the front. Like Luther, he was gloriously born again. And then there was Chuck Colson, known in the late 60s and early 70s as Nixon's hatchet man. He was the guy that would perform the behind-the-scenes dirty work for his boss, Richard Nixon. It was one set of him. Chuck's the kind of guy who would run over his grandmother, if necessary, to get the job done. After a rapid ascent in political power, his marriage soon failed. Colson descended into deep despair, and he too was left feeling miserable and empty. No matter what he tried, he could not find peace. It's a lot to be said for peace, isn't there? He eventually wrote a book entitled Born Again, and he describes that by 1972, he began to buckle. Nixon was calling him into the Oval Office at all hours of the night and seeing the writing on the wall. Colson resigned as special counsel to the president, longing to retreat into private life and just disappear from it all. But the Watergate scandal only tightened. Then in the summer of 1973, he was visiting an old friend, Tom Phillips. Here they are pictured years later. Tom brought up spiritual things, confronted his pride, and presented the gospel message. That led to reading and studying together. And later that summer, his friend Tom asked if he could pray with Chuck. After that prayer, Chuck stumbled to his car, and he found himself sitting there in the driveway of his friend. The lights on the house went out. He was all alone, and he finally broke down into a flood of emotion and tears. Others closely connected with Chuck tried to convince those in politics that Chuck was a changed man, that he too had been born again. But anybody that knew Chuck said, there's no way. And doors would slam, phones would hang up. In a last-ditch effort, one of his friends reached out to Harold Hughes. He was a well-known Democratic senator at the time, and he was a very outspoken Christian. And so in the phone call, it was stated, Senator, I have a friend who is in tremendous need and needs a friend. I was wondering if you could meet him, maybe come alongside of him, help him along with the Lord. But when Hughes learned this friend was Colson, he uttered some obscenities and hung up. An hour later, he called back and said, I'm sorry. He admitted to being a poor represent, representative of Christ and said he'd be happy to meet him, but we'd have to meet far outside of D.C., way out in the country, at 11 o'clock at night. Hughes was very skeptical. And when they came together, he asked about the newfound faith of Nick, Nixon's hatchet man. After 20 minutes, Hughes got up, walked across the room, and embraced Colson and said, we're friends for life. Another glorious conversion of what I think we could say was a notorious 
sinner. Even within our own denomination, Dwayne Lemon was a professional hip-hop dancer and once got into a bar fight with another hip-hop singer. Doug Batchelor lived in a cave naked. David Asterick had purple hair, punk rocker. He was an atheist. Clifford Goldstein lived in a kibbutz and heckled Christians in the street. Sebastian Braxton went to prison. It happens all the time. From dogmatic atheists to determined agnostics to bright young physicians to coaches and athletes, from musicians and criminals. People around the world have responded to the everlasting gospel and their lives have been transformed. But when it's someone from the public eye, people are either amazed or they're skeptical. Was Jim Voss really converted? Did Colson really have a change of heart? What's his angle? And could it happen that fast? You know what I think our problem is often? We confuse conversion with maturity. Now we know that if they are truly converted, maturity will come. It has to, but it takes time. Justification is a work of a moment. Sanctification is a work of a lifetime. You've heard that said before, right? I often like to say good works are not the root, they're the fruit. But sometimes we think if a person is converted, every part of their life will be cleaned up in 24 hours. Could it be that we've forgotten about the details of our own miserable past? We have forgotten our own missteps and the incredible grace and patience of God with us. This is the second message in a series that we're entitling Paul, a man of grace and grit. And we're just here on the, the front end of this. Last time, we looked at an, an element, and really we're not talking about Paul just yet. We're still talking about Saul. But two weeks ago, we saw how our first introduction of Saul in Scripture is brutal and it's bloody. To our horror, he stands nodding in agreement and guarding the garments while they stone God's prophet, Stephen. Our first look at Saul looks more like a terrorist than a devout follower of Judaism. Yet we cannot talk about amazing conversion stories and not include the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Descriptions of Paul's violent past make us uncomfortable. The scriptures attest to the depth of Paul's sinful past. Acts 22, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. In fact, in, in three places we have Paul describing his experience. And so here's one of them. Continuing on in verse 5. And also the high priest bears me witness in all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Acts 26, verse 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's who we're talking about. Galatians 1, 13, 
The pen of Paul again, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You get the picture. Martin Luther, Jim Voss, Chuck Colson, they all pale in comparison to Saul's aggressive and notorious past. Augustine called Saul's conversion the violent capture of a rebel will. He pictured it as being like changing the nature of a wild wolf into the spirit of a lamb. Friends, only God could do that to a depraved soul like Saul. How did it happen? He comments in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, again referencing his conversion, I was shown mercy. One day, mercy met the rebel Saul as he pressed toward Damascus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to this story, the first place that we find it, in Acts chapter 9, beginning verse 1. We're in Acts chapter 9, beginning in the first verse. And there we read, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Pause. Can you sense the anger here? Saul's blood is boiling. He's on a murderous rampage towards Damascus. He is charging out of Jerusalem with fury, the same fury perhaps of Alexander the Great sweeping across Persia. Saul is borderline out of control. His fury had intensified almost to the point of no return. He had bloodthirsty determination and blind hatred for the followers of this heretic called Christ. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, Damascus, you see here on the map, it doesn't look that far, but the map is zoomed out quite a bit. It's just north and to the east of Jerusalem, but it's some 150 miles away. To get there would have required several days. On foot, some commentators say it would have taken eight days. That's like traveling from here to Winston-Salem or Columbia, South Carolina. And according to Josephus, at one point in history, 10,000 Jews were massacred in Damascus, which is hard evidence that at one time there was a significant number of Jewish people in that city. Saul had the census figures and devised an aggressive plan to storm that city. They're not getting away. The stronghold now is in Damascus, and I'm going there. I don't care how far it is. I have letters, and we're going to get it done. Continuing on, verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It doesn't say the church. It doesn't say my disciples, my people. It says, why are you persecuting me? Here, Jesus is identifying with his people. In fact, hold your finger there and turn to, to Luke chapter 10. I don't have this one on the screen, 
Luke 10, verse 16. We read here, he who hears you hears me, Jesus says, and he who rejects you rejects who? Me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Here in Acts, Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? He's identifying with his people. And while Saul is on this road, his murderous journey is brought to a divine halt. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, without warning, the course of Saul's life changes dramatically. Life can do that at times. The phone call comes. I got one just this week. Somebody has been in a head-on collision. They're being airlifted. Perhaps it's the death of a child and you're impacted forever. Perhaps your biopsy isn't good. It looks like malignancy. And that jolt knocks you flat. And almost immediately your thoughts turn to God. And whether in blame or in desperation, your thoughts have changed. For more than three decades, Saul controlled his own life. His record in Judaism was second to none. He was on his way to make an even greater name for himself when he stopped dead in his tracks. That's often what happens when calamity strikes. Sometimes you're left paralyzed, can't move, can't hardly walk out of the doctor's office. I know of individuals who, after hearing the diagnosis from the doctor, have stumbled into the men's room and vomited and dropped to their knees and sobbed uncontrollably. Life's unexpected jolts grip us with such fear we can scarcely go on sometimes. But for the first time in Saul's proud, self-sustained life, Saul found himself a desperate dependent on the ground, bright light. Jolts are those things that happen in life that are the great equalizers, we could say. Pastor Hyman at times likes to make up words. One word he's made up is solutionistic. It's the idea that someone always has a solution to a problem. Oh, you just do this and solve and go over here and you do that and done and taken care of. Solutionistic. But with the jolts in life, when they come, there is no human solution. No amount of money, no pill, no contact, nothing and nobody can bail you out. But it's in those moments that you find there's no place else to turn that we often look up. Perhaps it's in those moments that we hear the voice of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, I don't care so much about your career. I don't care about your popularity. I don't care about all of these other things that you care about at this moment. I care about you and what you're doing to my people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had convinced himself that he was persecuting people of a cultic following of a false Messiah. Instead, he discovered that the true object of his vile brutality was Christ himself. And in a moment, his boldness vanished. And don't miss the obvious fact. The Lord knew him by name. He knew every hair on his head. He knew every vicious thought, every poisonous motive. The Lord knew everything about him. And then in verse 5, and he, Saul, said, 
Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I imagine there were seconds of deafening silence. Could this be? Had he been wrong? Now, the word he uses there for Lord is really, it's better translated as sir. So he's not really at the point where he recognizes yet. He's simply saying, who are you, sir? Who is this? What is going on? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Could this be? Had he been wrong? Was all this, have I been, does this mean And in the moment, I believe in that moment, his rebel will is captured. His journey reversed directions. His mind did a turnaround that would ultimately transform him from the inside out. I mean, that's the essence of genuine repentance, isn't it? The mind does a turnaround. That's what repentance means to turn around, to make an about face. I was going that way, but I've completely changed directions. Now I'm going this way. Saul thought Christ was dead. Now he's convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was alive. And to finish the verse, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I imagine most of you are aware that goads are like prodding sticks. The simple stick you sharpen on one end, and to kick in rebellion would cause greater pain from the prodding stick. So the word implies Jesus is in pursuit of Saul. Often we think of Saul's conversion as sudden, almost violent encounter with Christ. But based on this expression, I believe the Lord had been working on Saul for years. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We could say the pricks. And how was it hard for him to kick against the goads or the pricks? Well, one, I believe there was the goad of Jesus' life and words. I believe the words and works of Jesus haunted the zealous Pharisee. Because I believe it's very likely that Saul had heard Jesus teach and preach in public places. And as much as he tried to put off the ministry of Jesus as the work of the devil himself, I imagine there was this prodding. What if this is true? And he couldn't put that thought to bed. Secondly, I think there was the goad of Stephen's peaceful death. Saul probably never fully recovered from the mental image of Stephen's death, his stoning. In fact, it probably later in life inspired his own death. And it wasn't just what Stephen said, but it was the way that he died that haunted him. No screaming. No pitiful pleading for mercy, no cursing, no recanting of his faith. Instead, his face shone like one, like the face of an angel, it says. And he prayed. He prayed. Don't hold this charge against them, Father, for they don't know what they are doing. Acts the Apostles 112 and 113, it says, Saul had taken a prominent part in the trial and conviction of Stephen. And the striking evidences of God's presence with the martyr had led Saul to doubt the righteousness of the cause he had espoused against the followers of Jesus. His mind was deeply stirred. 
Or maybe we could say pricked. In his perplexity, he appealed to those whose wisdom and judgment had, he had full confidence. The arguments of the priests and rulers finally convinced him that Stephen was a blasphemer, that Christ, whom the martyred disciple had preached, was an imposter, and that those ministering in the holy office must be right. He talked to the who's who, and he was able to try and silence the voice and convince himself, no, this guy's a heretic. But somehow in the quiet moments of the day, it would come back. Are you sure? Not without severe trial did Saul come to this conclusion. But in the end, his education, prejudice, his respect for his former teachers, and his pride of popularity braced him to rebel against the voice of conscience and the grace of God. Friends, there is such thing as a conscience. It's called the Holy Spirit. And he pricks us for our own good and says, this is not best for you. Leave this alone. Don't go there. Don't do that. Yet sadly, to our own detriment, we become very good at quieting the voice of the Holy Spirit. We callous parts of our bodies so well that we don't feel the pricks anymore. And that was Saul. But the Holy Spirit wasn't giving up. Kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. As Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I think there was also the goad of Christians' courageous faith. Certainly, Saul was confronted with the courage of his prisoners. Though some may have given up their faith, the vast majority would stand firm in their allegiance to their master, to Christ, and their undaunted courage in the face of certain death must have goaded Saul. What do they have that they're willing to die over and they have such peace in the process? I don't imagine Saul could simply put these out of his mind. And thus, the amazing capture of the rebel will. And last, the goad of seeing the risen Savior. You might say, well, make, wait a minute. But what does the voice say? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. If we look at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, again, a letter written by Paul. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Simple question, what's an apostle? An apostle is one directly sent by the risen Jesus to preach the gospel. How could Paul claim this? Because he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He recognized him, and it cut him to his core. I know that face. I know that man. I even know that voice. Saul, Saul, calls him by name. Why are you persecuting me? And it turns his life upside down. Friends, when we are confronted with Jesus, everything changes. Again, Acts the Apostles, in this glorious being, the light that shone, if you will, who stood before him, he saw the crucified one, Upon the soul of the stricken Jew, the image of the Savior's countenance was imprinted forever. Saul never forgot the face that he saw on the Damascus road, the face of the one that he hated so much, the face of the heretic that now says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
The word spoken struck home to his heart with appalling force in the darkened chambers of his mind. There poured a flood of light, revealing the ignorance and error of his former life and his present need of the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. And in that hour of heavenly illumination, Saul's mind acted with remarkable rapidity. The prophetic records of Holy Writ were open to his understanding. He saw the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension had been foretold by the prophets and proved him to be the promised Messiah. He had an aha moment. This was the Messiah. This was the Jesus of Nazareth. This was the Savior. And I have been working against the Son of God. So rightfully so, verse 6. So he, Saul, trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, you know, I can't hide anything from you. You, you know my past. You know my background. You know it all. Lord, what do you want me to do? I can't just click my heels and make it all go away. I have some serious stuff to pay for. What do I do now? Friends, it might seem like a point of weakness, but this is the first time we see Saul in a point of strength, saying, what do I do? Because Saul has come to the point of surrender. His direction, his plans, his purpose has all changed because he saw Jesus. And he responds the only way he knows how to respond. Lord, what do you want me to do? It's not about me anymore. What do you want? I imagine there's someone here who's always been prone to being solutionistic. You've always had all the answers. You've enjoyed success and accolades. But maybe you felt a jolt in life. Maybe it's a diagnosis, a loss, a tragedy, something beyond your control, and it served as a wake-up call. And perhaps for the first time in your experience, you find yourselves desperately dependent. And in that moment, you have seen more clearly that you have been living in opposition to God. Perhaps like Saul, everything looks good on the outside. I mean, Saul had full support of church leadership. He was brilliant, well-connected, passionate, committed. But the reality was Saul was living in opposition to God. And God sent many things to work on his heart and caused him to think, caused him to be unsettled, to draw him to the truth. I believe the Holy Spirit brought the words of Jesus to his mind. I believe the Holy Spirit brought the persecution to Stephen, of Stephen to his mind. I believe the Holy Spirit brought the courageous Christians to his mind. And now Jesus knows the timing was right. And in that faithful day, God arrested his attention on the road to Damascus. And perhaps someone here is having a similar experience. Everything on the outside looks good. But there's this uneasiness, this gnawing, this lack of peace. There's been a growing doubt as to your path and direction in life. And perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit has arrested your attention and you can't keep pushing him away. You can't kick against the pricks. And maybe like Saul, you're asking, Lord, what do I do? Perhaps you feel Jesus calling you by name. John, John, Sarah, Sarah, whatever your name is, why are you running from me? You think in money you will find contentment. You won't. 
You think in success you'll find fulfillment. You won't. You think in entertainment you'll find joy, but you won't. You think you can medicate the pain through drugs or alcohol, but you can't. And some of you know it to be true because you tried it all and it doesn't work. Friends, the reality is in Christ alone is contentment, period, full stop. In Christ alone is peace. In Christ alone is joy. In Christ alone is purpose and meaning. In Christ alone there is hope. And I believe Jesus this morning is calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This morning Jesus is offering you something better. This morning Jesus is calling you by name. And perhaps this morning you're tired of running. You're tired of kicking against the goads of your conscience, the goads of the Holy Spirit, the goads of your upbringing, perhaps. And in your own heart of hearts, you long to come home. In a moment, I'm going to make a call. But rest assured, the devil will be quick to come in and remind you of your past, maybe your present, your wicked thoughts, your bad deeds, your addictions, your shame. Friend, Saul was there. In fact, we can read his own account Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, first five verses. All of chapter 2 is great, but we're just going to do the first five verses. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 1. And there we read, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil, by the way. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, circle that. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, all are dead in trespasses. All have walked according to the course of this world. All have been addicted to the lusts of the flesh and only fulfilling the desires of the mind. And in case anyone here is feeling high and mighty, Paul reminds us we all have been there. We all once conducted ourselves in these ways. And as we've learned last time, no amount or depth of sin in your past can trump the grace of God. Even though your past is soiled, anyone can find a new beginning with God. And I love this part of the verse. You that were dead in trespasses, but verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us when we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus wants to make us alive through Jesus Christ. For by grace, we have been saved. The price has been paid. The question now is, are you in Christ? Are you surrendered? Are you in Christ this morning? I imagine for someone in an audience this size, the answer is no. No, I'm not. But maybe there's someone that is honest and says, but I want to be. Maybe your prayer is, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you're simply saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? That prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. We're told that we can't be lost when we utter that prayer. Friends, sanctification is the work of a lifetime, and God promises to help you with that. 
But justification is the work of a moment. It is in that moment when you surrender everything to Jesus and say like Saul, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you're willing to do whatever he calls you to do. And so this morning, my call has two parts. The first, if you want to surrender everything to Jesus, if you want to say, Jesus, I want to be about your business, not my own. If you want to say, Jesus, today I commit to be yours. If you want to surrender all to him this morning, it's a simple call. Simply stand where you are. Don't stand just because people around you are standing. But if that's what you want to say, Lord, I surrender all, then stand. But I told you there'd be two parts. The second part of this call is this. In just a moment, we're going to sing. But as we sing, I imagine, again, in this crowd, there's somebody that needs to be baptized or rebaptized. Some here have already made that commitment and you're preparing. And so this isn't for you. You've already made that stand. And I praise the Lord for that. But I'm speaking to that person that still needs to make that commitment. They need to give their life to Jesus. They need to make that decision to turn. In a public way this morning, they need to say, I am choosing Jesus today. I can't kick against the goads any longer. I want to be prepared for baptism or rebaptism. Now, friends, we all fall short and we all must ask for forgiveness. But rebaptism, I believe, is prepared for those who have divorced themselves with God and said, I want you out of my life. Or they've just completely neglected him and have slowly walked away and they can't remember the last time they've talked to him. That's just not a matter of forgiveness for this thing I did last week. This is something I need to be remarried to God, if you will, through rebaptism. Maybe you've been coming to this church for years with your spouse. Everybody assumes that you're a full-fledged baptized member, but you've never made the decision. This is for you to come when we sing. Maybe you've been studying for years and you know all the doctrines, but you've never fully surrendered to Jesus. You have a head knowledge, but you don't know the Jesus behind it. Maybe you've been living a life of rebellion against God. You're still coming to church, but your life is far from him. And this morning you want to come in repentance to turn to make that about face. Then you need to come forward as we sing. Perhaps you're a teenager And you feel that you've missed that window of opportunity to be baptized and everybody else has moved on and you feel a little bit too embarrassed to come back now and be baptized. Maybe you picked up some habits along the way and perhaps you're in a relationship you know is outside of God's will. Perhaps you're experimenting with things that the world has to offer. But you know this morning you need to make a change. Then you need to come forward. Perhaps there's somebody here saying, you know, I'm not a bad person but I'm not a surrendered person. It's still all about me, what I want, what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go. And you've had it that way long enough and you just feel empty. You're tired of riding the fence, of living the double life, and you want more. If you'd like to be fully surrendered through baptism or rebaptism, I invite you to come forward. And perhaps there's somebody here that everything looks good on the outside, but you've just simply lost what you once had. You can think back to a time where Jesus was everything to you. You woke up in the morning and you enjoyed reading your Bible. You enjoyed having prayer time. You considered yourself thick with the Almighty, but now it's just a distant memory. That person is so far removed from where you are. And you say, I need to recommit to the Lord by coming forward through baptism or rebaptism.
and say, Lord, I surrender all. And I imagine here that someone won't come forward because they're afraid of what people will think. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be condemned in front of all my peers. I don't want to be found out. But friends, as Paul reminded us in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh. We're all saved the same way, and it's not by good works. That's the fruit. That's not the root. We're saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. So what will people think? I like to think they'll say, praise the Lord. That's what they'll think. There's no shame in admitting fault and depending on Jesus Christ. There's no shame in stating before the world that you are a sinner. We all are. There's no shame in recognizing your needs of Jesus shed blood on your behalf. What is the shame in wanting to become a better person? Where's the shame in saying, I need Jesus? Where's the shame in saying, I need help? Where's the shame in saying, I surrender all? Lord, what do you want me to do? No, the shame is saying, I got this. I got this. The shame is in seeking to overcome on your own strength. And this morning, we've all stood because we want to surrender all to Jesus, haven't we? That's where we all stand this morning. But if you're in a place in your journey that you know you need to be baptized, rebaptized, I want to give you that opportunity to come forward. It's not about me. If nobody comes forward, that's fine. This is about you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't want people to say to me at the door today, you didn't give me an opportunity to make a stand for Jesus. So here's your opportunity. Dear Heavenly Father, we are standing here this morning because we want to surrender all. Perhaps we didn't feel that baptism or rebaptism is something that you were calling us to do, and that's fine. But perhaps the Holy Spirit has pricked something within us that we know we need to turn from, that we know we need to give to you, that we need to have the attitude of Saul, who will soon become Paul, that says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you use this criminal and sinister man to do incredible things for you. Lord, it's hard for us to believe that you could use us, but you do have plans and purposes for us. And they're not plans just to prosper us and give us hope and future. Those are all wonderful things, but they're also plans to help us further your cause, to further your mission, and to bring honor and glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us, myself included, will surrender all to you today, that whatever you have brought to the forefront of our mind, we will give to you, we will lay down at the foot of the cross, and we will leave here different than the way we came. Not just more committed, but forgiven. Not just feeling better, but feeling inspired. Not loaded down with guilt, but loaded down with joy because of your incredible mercy towards us, your grace and your forgiveness. And may that same grace and that same mercy continue to change us in your likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.